Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. This week we have a conversation with well-known South African peace and justice activist Naeem Jinnah about the erasure of Desmond Tutu's passionate support for Palestinian rights from obituaries in mainstream media. Later in the program, we speak with Tara Seperifar, a senior Iran researcher at Human Rights Watch, about the death of jailed Iranian poet and documentary filmmaker Bakhtash Optin. He died in a hospital in Tehran after contracting COVID-19 in detention. Rights group Pen America said on Twitter, COVID is a natural killer, but Optin's death was aided and abetted by the Iranian government every step of the way. Stay with us. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who died two weeks ago, has been described and will be remembered as a moral and ethical giant, even by some of his adversaries. But one important facet of his exemplary legacy has been largely obscured in the Western media, his passionate advocacy for Palestinian rights. Khalil Bendib spoke with prominent South African peace and justice activist Naeem Jinnah about the reasons behind this attempt to censor this great man as well as the deepening support for the Palestinian cause in Africa's largest economy. Naeem Jinnah, welcome to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. It's an honor to have you with us today. It's an honor for me, Khalil, to be on your show. Black Nazi pig. These words were scrawled on the walls of St. George Anglican Cathedral in occupied East Jerusalem, where Archbishop Desmond Tutu was staying during a Christmas visit to occupied Palestine in 1989. In 2014, the South African Jewish Report, which is the country's official Jewish community newspaper, published an op-ed piece that likened Tutu to Adolf Hitler, no less. In your opinion, why this kind of vitriol against the Archbishop? Well, I think the pro-Israeli lobby and uh, Zionist apologists, not only in South Africa, of course, in various parts of the world, have established themselves over years, over decades, as the kind of the dominant narrative on the Palestinian issue. And uh, certainly we see this very much in the United States and in South Africa, where these lobbies are pretty strong. You might not know this, uh, Khalil, but the South African Jewish community is vast majority is Zionist and pro-Israeli, different to some extent from the American one as well. A few years ago, there was some study done that the South African Jewish community per capita sends more money to Israel than any other Jewish community in the world. So they've established um, themselves as the kind of dominant narrative on the issue. And then when you have someone who comes up, even though it might be a person who is very respected in all circles, but uh, kind of knocks a hole or makes a crack in that narrative, and particularly because it's such a respected person, in a sense, he or she can't be allowed to get away with it because that crack could just get bigger. So I think we're seeing this um, more recently with some of these celebrities. I mean, look at the response that Emma Watson got. 
Emma Watson, who doesn't really speak politics much, hasn't really said anything about Palestine in the past, but one tweet. Emma um, Watson this, this is book. a famous uh, actress. Tell yes, more, from yeah. uh, okay. Harry Potter. She tweeted this picture with a sea of Palestinian flags, etc., with a, a text over it saying, solidarity is a verb. That, that's all she said. In the case of Tutu, even though he's, in a sense, because of his history, to some extent, kind of untouchable. He's been extremely consistent in standing out for justice, um, speaking against the apartheid regime in the past, speaking against the ANC government more recently with corruption and lack of service delivery and socioeconomic issues, etc. And he didn't really care who he upset as long as he was sure that um, he was on the side of justice. And that was his position. And that got him lots of support, even in the South African context, even among whites and um, among those white Zionists as well. But when he spoke out against Israel, that became a kind of no-go zone. And when he started saying things like, what I see done against the Palestinians reminds me of what was done against black South Africans, and then went beyond that to say that what is done against Palestinians by Israel is worse than what South Africans experienced. He had to be shut down. And as we're seeing now, Khalil, the shutting down didn't last only while he was alive. But people like Dershowitz and others have continued that stuff about him being anti-Semitic, even racist, etc., after his death. Yes, and as you were saying, because of his credentials, because of his incredible standing, it becomes more urgent to attack him, not less. Absolutely, because if you let Desmond Tutu get away with that, you know, suddenly people will start thinking that maybe there's some sense in what he's saying, so you can't let him get away with it. You made a distinction between the South African Jewish community and the one in the United States. Did you mean that it's even more Zionistic than the one here in the States, because here it's not clear what the numbers are. There are no official numbers saying, stating, well, it's the majority of the Jewish community or it's a minority that supports Israel unconditionally. What did you mean by that distinction? So our sense is that in the American Jewish community, increasingly over the years, there's a diversity in terms of positions regarding Israel. Certainly, So there yes. are those hardcore pro-Israeli, unquestioningly so. There are those even organized groups that are supportive of Israel, but somewhat critical. Then there are those that are just non-Zionist, and then there are anti-Zionists among the Jews in the United States. In South Africa, the vast majority are pro-Israeli, and this comes out through various ways. There is a small but vocal pro-Palestinian group within the Jewish community, mostly activists who are also involved in various other things, including some who are actually religious Jews, but it is a small minority. The vast majority is uncritically, unquestioningly pro-Israel. Desmond Tutu wrote that, quote, the Israeli government is placed on a pedestal and to criticize it is to be immediately dubbed anti-Semitic. People are scared in the U.S. to say wrong is wrong because the pro-Israeli lobby is powerful, very powerful, end of quote. 
Some on the American left, including Noam Chomsky himself, claim that portraying the pro-Israel lobby as powerful is anti-Semitic, or at least divisive and counterproductive. How does the South African left, diverse as it may be, generally stand on this particular issue? Are some anti-colonialist activists making the same claim that somehow it's not really a question of lobby, it's other things that are at work? No, I don't know of anyone in South Africa, in the left particularly, who is making that kind of an argument. And perhaps partly it's because the diversity within the Jewish community, as I said, is less than in the U.S., but also partly because those Jews who are pro-Palestinian are very vocal, very uncompromising. And we talk about people like Ronnie Casserles, who was a commander in the ANC's armed wing in where in the leadership of the South African Communist Party, after 1994 served under Mandela and uh, Thabo Mbeki as uh, deputy minister and then minister, including minister of intelligence. We talk about someone like Stephen Friedman, who's one of the most well-known political commentators in South Africa, is a religious Jew, preaches at a synagogue every week and supports a one-state solution and um, is completely anti-Zionist and various others. So when these voices, Jewish voices, are as uncompromising in their opposition to Israeli apartheid as they are, in a sense, they don't leave that space open uh, <laughs> to be able to say that kind of thing. And secondly, that they make it clear that they are Jews, most of them, some of them don't really care much about the Jewish identity, but most of them, they make it clear that they are Jews and being Jewish means that they oppose Israel's practices. I mean, Stephen Friedman would say that being Jewish and being a, a scholar of um, Judaism and Jewish communities over millennia, that um, it's because of that that he does not believe in a Jewish state, because he, he believes that Jews are actually better served in democratic societies than in a state of their own. So you have that kind of an, an opinion. And so when I say, as I said earlier on, that the vast majority of the South African Jewish community is pro-Israeli, from the anti-Israeli side of the Jewish community, no one's going to blink and say, well, that sounds anti-Semitic. Why are you lumping all Jews together? Because this is the reality we accept it as a reality. Desmond Tutu called on the Cape Town Opera Company to boycott a tour of Israel and for South African academic institutions to cut ties with those in Israel. In that, he's also more radical and more I would say, consistent with his values than someone like Noam Chomsky in this country. The vilification of Tutu's Palestine legacy continued, as you mentioned earlier, even after he died. And tributes in the mainstream media, particularly in the United States and Europe, focus exclusively on Tutu's message of dialogue and reconciliation, reducing his legacy both in South Africa and abroad to a fairy tale of forgiveness rather than the long and hard often angry quest for global justice and freedom. That's happened to Martin Luther King as well. Tell us a little bit about this phenomenon of accepting only certain parts of the man. First, on, on the first part of what you said, uh, Khalil, I mean, it's clear that Tutu, it wasn't a case of he went to Palestine, he met Christians there, got upset and came and made a speech. 
he was consistent in his support of the Palestinian struggle as a struggle for justice. He supported the BDS campaign. I mean, you know, in the old apartheid days, in, in the South African apartheid days, he was one of the strong global campaigners for what we call the sanctions campaign against South Africa, which was essentially BDS. Yes. And he continued with the Palestinian uh, case, he continued. In the last few years of his life, he withdrew from uh, from public life, and that's because he was very ill and made that decision and, you know, his family, etc. But he would occasionally, you'd see his name pop up, having endorsed some statement or given some message. And it was usually on the Palestinian issue. He felt so strongly about it that he kind of came out of that retirement just briefly to make such a comment. You mentioned Martin Luther King as being a victim of this kind of thing as well. In our context, we also have Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela, and with Mandela, it started before he died even. He's portrayed as this teddy bear. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, this shopping center in Johannesburg, which is one of the kind of upper class rich shopping malls in the country, there's something called Mandela Square, huge statue of Mandela dancing. And this is the kind of image that white people would like to have of Mandela, the guy who reconciled with white people, the guy who danced. And let me just say this, that I have often heard from young Zionists some of whom were not even born in 94 or even in 1990 when Mandela was released from prison. After speaking about Palestine, you'd hear one or two of them make a comment such as, you know, if only the Palestinians were to follow Nelson Mandela's example, engage in a peaceful struggle. But Mandela was sentenced to life imprisonment because he was the head of Mkonto Wesizwe the spear of the nation, the armed wing of the ANC, not because he was a follower of Gandhi. <laughs> um, he didn't believe in passive resistance. I mean, he was, right. you know, he went to, he trained with the Algerian revolutionaries on how to shoot, how to use weapons just before he got arrested. Yet the kind of version that we see of Mandela is this teddy bear version. And this kind of repackaging of the image, what it does is, in fact, it robs oppressed people of the reality and the true value of their own leaders and their own icons. So now it, it becomes kind of insulting to even talk about Mandela and talk about a gun in the same sentence, even though that's what he was arrested and jailed for, because there's dominant narrative that has repackaged him as someone who is friendly to the oppressors of black people. And this is the same kind of thing that, that is happening now to Tutu. So Tutu dies, and you get all of these obituaries all over the world because he was so well-known. Some people might argue that he was even more consistent in his stand than Mandela was, but he was well-known all over the world. So, of course, you can't ignore him. He is an icon. So you write these uh, obituaries, but you write out of the obituaries the uncomfortable parts. And you make him the acceptable teddy bear for white people, for Zionists, etc. And this is not just Western media. The Mail and Guardian, one of the more influential newspapers in South Africa, had a 24-page supplement, tabloid-sized newspaper, 24-page supplement on Tutu. Only one article in that mentioned Palestinian, mentioned Zionism, and mentioned Israel. Only one article 
out of 24 pages. That's a South African publication. So they kind of write out the what they regard as the uncomfortable parts of it. They repackage the guy. So now if you stand up and you support BDS, well, you have no connection to Tutu. Why don't you behave like Tutu did? He loved everyone and he reconciled with everyone. So you forced or you're made to forget that, in fact, this is a guy who uncompromisingly supported BDS, who very clearly said that what Palestinians face is worse than what black South Africans face. And so, in a sense, while someone like Tutu could never be co-opted when he was alive, after his death, the attempt is to co-opt him in the service of the dominant narrative and in the service of oppression. And just twist his words and make him say things exactly opposite to what he said. As you just alluded to, the Archbishop was known to have said very forcefully that in various ways apartheid was even worse in Palestine than in South Africa. You yourself have made that point eloquently. Tell us what the Archbishop and you mean when you say that not only was Israel an apartheid state, but in many ways even worse than South Africa. That's a pretty drastic statement. The bar is already very low when we know how terrible things were in South Africa in uh, apartheid days. Give us some examples of what you mean by it even worse than in South Africa. Well, look, perhaps I don't have to go uh, into an analysis of why the Israeli state is an apartheid state. Certainly in terms of the convention for the suppression and punishment of the crime of apartheid, it qualifies in almost all of the criteria listed in the convention as being an apartheid state. So from a legal perspective, its practices both in the occupied territory, as well as within Israel itself, its practices constitute apartheid from a legal perspective. If we want to talk about a comparison with South Africa, well, then there is a comparison to be made in terms of how Israel has systematically and through legal means separated people, designated certain group of people as being inferior to others, etc., and then ensured that privileges and rights flow in a particular way to one group of people while another group of people is deprived of that. So all of those kind of similarities between South Africa and, and Israel exist. So what, what do we then mean if we say that Israeli apartheid is worse than South African apartheid? There are reasons for this, but there were lines that in South Africa were not crossed. To be honest, as someone who grew up in the 1980s, arguably the worst time of apartheid in South Africa, I can say that we, we never dreamt that we would have a situation in South Africa where you would have roads where only white people could drive on and other roads that were restricted only for black people. You have that in Palestine, right? While we had pass laws and uh, restriction of freedom of movement for black people, etc., we did not have the kind of checkpoints in South Africa that you have in the Palestinian context. And uh, while black people were humiliated on a daily, more than a daily, hourly basis, in our context, the kind of humiliation meted out to Palestinians, whether it's at checkpoints or in their homes, etc., is not only much worse, but uh, in some ways more than what we would have dreamt would have happened in the South African context. Look at the forced removals of Palestinian residents in Jerusalem. Whether in terms of the legislation that is used against 
Palestinian residents, uh, Palestinians who are citizens of Israel, as well as Palestinians in the occupied territory, whether it's the legislation, whether it's the way in which it is practiced. I spoke about checkpoints, I spoke about forced removals. And, you know, while we compare forced removals in Sheikh Jarrah, for example, to, to what happened in South Africa, the scale is very different in, in the Jerusalem context in terms of the way in which the army comes in, the way that settlers dispossess people, etc. Very different and very much worse. And then, of course, in terms of the repressive machinery that is used to maintain apartheid in the Palestinian context, much worse than what it was in South Africa. To be honest, I've said this many a time, but Archbishop Tutu said it as well, that we never had in the South Africa the equivalent of F-16 or Apache helicopters flying over townships, dropping bombs and firing on people even have tanks going into our townships. We had armored personnel carriers, we had soldiers, but not to that extent. While this is a, a routine thing in the Palestinian context, and I'm not talking only about uh, Gaza, but uh, even in the West Bank, the West Bank is in fact under military occupation and the governance of the West Bank is left up to to the Israeli occupation forces, not even the civilian government. That was a very different context from what we had in in South African uh, situation. The Bantustans that South Africa created, what they called independent homelands, which in a sense very similar to kind of the Palestinian Authority, the Bantustans in the South African context actually had more independence and more power than the Palestinian Authority has. So in all kinds of ways, The framework of apartheid in the Palestinian context, as well as the implementation of apartheid in the Palestinian context, is much worse than what it was uh, in South Africa, particularly if you're talking about the occupied territory, but also if you're talking about Palestinians within Israel. Naim Jinnah, South Africa is a unique case in the history of colonialism, in that even post-apartheid, to a large extent, coexistence between the majority native population and the former colonialist continues, creating a complex and sometimes ambivalent relationship with other colonial states, such as Israel. In 2009, South African dockers refused to load an Israeli ship, and in 2021, again, they boycotted the offloading of an Israeli ship docked at the Durban Harbor. What is the current attitude of South Africa's labor movement towards Israel? And is it becoming more independent vis-a-vis official South African uh, foreign policy? It's a timely question, particularly because right now there's a huge campaign by some of the trade unions around a brand that is a very kind of iconic South African brand. It's Clover Dairies. When I was a little kid, before I even started school, I remember having clover milk delivered to our house. So clover milk and all kinds of milk products that they sell. A South African brand that is decades old has just over a year ago was bought out by a consortium led by the Israeli Central Bottling Company, a consortium called Milko. At the time when they bought it out, at the competition commission hearing where they had to make a case for the buyout, they guaranteed that there wouldn't be job losses, etc. We are now seeing that hundreds of workers 
have been retrenched. Six branches are being closed down and the conditions of clover workers has really deteriorated. But the point here is that these workers, clover workers and the unions that they belong to, were pro-Palestinian even before this. So when workers approached the Competition Commission to oppose the buyout of Clover, it was partly on the basis of their fear, which is now being realized, their fear of what it would mean for workers, and partly on the basis that South Africa as a constitutional democracy, where in human rights plays a big role in our constitution, that South Africa should not allow the buyout of a South African company by a company like the Israel CBC, which has subsidiaries in the settlements, etc. That was a position that the union movement officially presented. So they brought in, in a sense, a foreign policy matter into a local labor issue. And just over this weekend, the campaign around Clover has heated up. There was a huge rally two days ago uh, in Johannesburg. And half of the speakers that, that spoke at the rally were not worker leaders or workers, but were from the Palestine Solidarity Movement. So the trade union or the worker movement in South Africa has been, even from the apartheid days and continues to be, very pro-Palestinian. They see a great deal of similarity between the oppression of Palestinian people and the oppression of black people in South Africa in the past. And the trade unions also are very vocal and articulate in South Africa. And although the impact on South Africa's foreign policy is sometimes not as great as we would like it to be, there is an influence. The African National Congress, the ruling party, is in, in an alliance with the South African Communist Party and with the Congress of South African Trade Unions, for example. So there is, there is an influence, and South African government in its foreign policy is not able easily to ignore that influence. And in spite of Israel's egregious history of solidarity with the oppressive apartheid regime of South Africa, your country, or the ANC at least, the, the government, continues to have close ties to Israel. Describe to us today this relationship between the two nations at the official level and how complex it might be with different factions pushing in different directions. So first, of course, in the apartheid era, the relationship between the two, between Israel and apartheid South Africa, was extremely close. Israel played a huge role in uh, sanctions busting for the apartheid South African state. So there were a range of products which couldn't get into the European market, would be exported to Israel, repackaged as Israeli, and then get exported to, to Europe to be sold without any mention of it being from South Africa, for example. But there were also very close relations in terms of uh, military cooperation, intelligence cooperation, and notoriously nuclear cooperation. So both apartheid South Africa and apartheid Israel developed nuclear weapons, and they did that collaboratively. This was the relationship in the past. Even when the sanctions campaign had taken its strongest toll on the South African state and on the South African people, of course, because that's the, the effect of sanctions, there was a particular exception that was made by the apartheid government for the South African Jewish community if they were sending money to Israel. So exchange control regulations were eased if they were sending money to Israel, for example. So the, the relationship between the two, between Israel and apartheid South Africa, was extremely close. 
After the unbanning of the liberation movements and the release of political prisoners in 1990, Israel, of course, saw the writing on the wall, attempted to get close to the ANC, and that has played out in different ways at different times. So, of course, South Africa didn't end diplomatic relations with Israel, didn't even end trade relations with Israel. That continued, despite the ANC's kind of rhetoric around supporting the Palestinian struggle. And it wasn't only rhetoric. I mean, I think it was in 1996 that a Palestinian embassy, or as the plaque says, embassy of the state of Palestine, was opened in Pretoria, you know, full embassy level, ambassadorial level, and the ambassador of the state of Palestine based in Pretoria has always had somewhat preferential access uh, to people in the ANC and, and government, etc. But at the same time, they didn't reduce in any way the links with, well, not in any way, uh, I should say. In, in 1998, they stopped trading arms with Israel, for example. So there were some restrictions, but diplomatically, etc., it continued. And then you had at different points, uh, for example, on two occasions that I can think of, ambassadors who were sent from South Africa to Israel were extremely pro-Israeli. One of them was Christian Evangelist, who believed that Israel was you know, the promised land and all of that, went there, and particularly because he was a black person, gave tons of interviews saying uh, that there's no similarity between Israel and apartheid South Africa, etc. So you had these ups and downs. In between these two ambassadors that I spoke of, there was an ambassador who at a heads of mission, South African heads of missions meeting, tried to convince the South African Foreign Affairs Ministry to take a resolution of non-cooperation with Israel. So you had these, these kind of different things happening. And then you had a situation in the, around the early to mid-2000s when Thabo Mbeki, as president, decided for whatever reason decided that South Africa could play a role in mediating between the Israelis and Palestinians. And so there were a number of Israeli delegations that were brought to South Africa and some mediation efforts that, that were started, etc. Um, clearly, the South African government and the ANC were being played by Israel, who had the support of the United States and didn't care about a country like South Africa. But what happened was that they continually, the discourse narrative was continually that South Africa can't play this role of being a mediator as long as they continue to support the Palestinians in the way that they do. And so in 2003, the South African government under the ANC signed a trade agreement with Israel. And from 2003 until very recently, trade between Israel and South Africa in both directions have increased year on year because of that, that trade agreement in, in 2003. So you had that. But then in the late 2000s, then was a decision taken by the foreign ministry. And, and in between this period, there were a number of other things happened. Business delegations from South Africa that went to Israel, local police that were taken to Israel for training without the knowledge of the national government, those kinds of things, uh, local councillors, etc. And then in, in the late 2000s, there was a decision taken by the ANC and by the foreign ministry that there would be no official trips by uh, government or state representatives uh, to Israel. And slowly it began to turn in some ways. And then another kind of high point in that was the 2014 conference resolution of the ANC, 
which called on the South African government to downgrade relations with Israel, to shut down the embassy in Tel Aviv, and uh, to maintain only a liaison office. And then when the onslaught on Gaza took place, the ambassador was recalled in 2014. And since then, we have not had an ambassador in Tel Aviv, not even a charge. So the level of the representation in Tel Aviv, uh, diplomatic representation at the moment is very low, although Israel still has an ambassador here. And the relationship is somewhat rocky. We've had the past two foreign ministers that have been extremely vocal, the, the current one and the previous one, extremely vocal. The current foreign minister now has promised to ensure that South Africa, believe it or not, South Africa has to date not signed the con- uh, Convention on Apartheid, has guaranteed that it will be signed soon this year, and that in fact Israel falls foul of the convention, and it must be named as such in multilateral fora, like the United Nations. So there have been these kinds of ups and downs. At the moment, we have both a foreign minister and a president who have been pretty strong on the issue in their criticism of Israel, and particularly with the last couple of onslaughts on on Gaza. And it's interesting about our president, because our president, having formerly been a a trade union leader, then became a big businessman uh, before he went back into politics. And uh, as a businessman, he had lots of trade dealings with uh, Zionists in South Africa and with Israel. But despite that, he has been quite strong on the issue. So I think that's where we are at the moment, ups and downs, but I think at a place at the moment where there are openings for the Palestinian cause. The trend is very good. I'm glad to hear that it seems that the work of Desmond Tutu and people like yourself is bearing fruit, thankfully. <laughs> and uh, and the number of people, I should say, within the ANC who have worked very hard over many years. And, I'm, you know, earlier on, I mentioned Ronnie Castrells, for example. Ronnie Castrells, when he was Deputy Minister of Defense, then Minister of Waterways and Forestry and then Intelligence, would laugh about the fact that at cabinet meetings, he sometimes would be the only one insistent, like a crackpot, insistent on government taking a strong position on on the Palestinian issue. And so there were people like that who ensured that those who wanted to take advantage of the links with Israel for themselves or for their own projects or whatever, that they would always be looked at uh, with with criticism. And I I think that 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 pressure from within the ANC also has borne fruit. It's very encouraging to see that Africa's largest economy, namely South Africa's, is taking this path at the time when we see uh, Arab Gulf countries making friends with Israel. It gives you a, a sense of hope. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And you, I should just say that there was a time a few years ago when uh, whenever we would call on the South African government to support BDS, for example, or to uh, withdraw our ambassador, close down the Israeli embassy, the response would be, and, you know, one, I suppose, can have a small degree of sympathy with the response. The response would be, well, if the Arab League takes that kind of a position, we'll follow. I think that the ANC has also got to a point where they realize that the Arab League is a bit of a joke. Yes. <laughs> um, and then, of course, that, that has been helped 
I say that tongue-in-cheek, by all of these normalization agreements uh, more recently. In 2014, when there was supposed to have been the Israel-Africa summit in Togo, South Africa and Algeria were the two countries that campaigned vigorously on the continent to ensure that the summit wouldn't take place. Now, with the granting of accreditation to Israel in the African Union, South Africa has been one of the foremost countries campaigning against it. And irrespective of the fact that one of the biggest supporters of the uh, accreditation is Morocco, an Arab state, that Egypt, for example, has been lackluster in its position on this issue. Um, The South African view has been that This is not about what the Arab states say. This is about the legitimacy and the credibility and human rights uh, from an African perspective. And so they've been at the forefront of that as well. And I would add that it is not by accident that two countries that have possibly suffered the most from colonialism historically, or two of them at least, are in the forefront of Palestinian solidarity, Algeria and South Africa. It's not the same story in, in Morocco or in Egypt. They have not been subjected to the kind of uh, secular settler colonialism that both South Africa and Algeria have known. Yes, that's very true. I think that the links also between the South African and Algerian liberation movements go back to the days of the anti-colonial struggle in, in Algeria. And those have persisted through the years or decades of exile of the South African liberation movement. And the Algerian support for the South African struggle has been quite unwavering. Also, I should just add to this that as regards the Moroccan case, um, you know, the relations between Morocco and South Africa are not great. And one of the big reasons for that is South Africa's insistence that the issue of the Western Sahara or the uh, Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic, is in many ways similar to uh, to the struggle of the Palestinian people. Yes. And uh, so South Africa views Morocco and its role in the Western Sahara in a similar way that it views Israel and its role with the Palestinians. Naeem Jannah is a prominent South African peace and justice activist and the executive director of the Afro-Middle East Center, a research institute dedicated to studying the Middle East and North Africa and the relations between that region and the rest of Africa. He spoke with Khalil Bendib. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. On January 8th, 
the Independent Iranian Writers Association reported that dissident Iranian poet, writer, documentary filmmaker, and recipient of the 2021 Penn Barbary Freedom to Write Award, Bakhtash Optin had died in detention in Tehran after falling ill with COVID-19. While in prison, Mr. Optin contracted COVID-19, but he was denied medical treatment until it was too late. Mr. Optin was placed into a medically induced coma on January 1st and sadly died a week later. He was 47 years old. According to the Dublin-based NGO Frontline Defenders, Mr. Optin was sentenced to five years in prison on May 15, 2019, on charges of, quote, illegal assembly and collusion against national security, and one year for, quote, spreading propaganda against the state, in relations to his joint authorship of a book on the history of Iran's Writers' Association. Taras Perifar, a senior Iran researcher at Human Rights Watch, says, Iran's justice officials bear responsibility for the death of Bakhtish Optin, who should have never been imprisoned for his work. All prior government promises about investigating detention abuses ring hollow when prisoners continue to die in the face of authorities' utter lack of care for their lives. Bakhtash Optin, who was 47 at the time of his death, a poet and a writer, was one of the three writers who have recently been prosecuted and sentenced to six years imprisonment for their involvement with Iranian Writers Association. Iranian Writers Association is a very prominent, independent association that was established in 1968 and has been de facto banned for pretty much most of the time after the Iranian Revolution. They've had prominent members and writers over the course of several decades, and um, their members were the target of assassinations um, of dissidents that took place in the early years after President Khatami came to power. This was going on for longer than that period, but if you followed the politics of Iran, you might remember the assassination of dissidents in, in late 90s. They have paid a very high price for their dissent which has always been rooted in their writing and peaceful activism and association. And many of the members and writers and and intellectuals in Iran consider Bakhtash Optin just the latest victim of the attacks that um, independent writers and authors have been uh, been experiencing for decades. It is particularly shocking for many to, to hear his death, but when you look at the situation, the warning signs were very, very clear from the beginning. Different human rights organizations, um, different activists had warned about the real threat of imprisoning dissidents during a global pandemic. Prisons are inherently unsafe places um, in this situation, but cramping up prisons with people who should never be in prison in the first place is a particular cruelty that is still happening in Iran and has cost the precious life of one of Iran's bright writers who should be out there educating the population instead of experiencing what what he experienced over the last few months of his life.
Tara, Iranian Writers Association um, has called his death a murder. Penn International says Iranian regime, Iranian authorities are responsible for his death. Human Rights Watch also blames Iranian regime for his death. Why do you think Iranian authorities, the prison authorities, security forces, they did not provide him with adequate medical care? He got COVID twice in prison. Why this is happening? I think first and foremost, Iranian government is responsible because of the condition they created that resulted in his death, imprisoning him at the time um, that the pandemic was ravaging Iran and the rest of the world. While, as I said, he should have never been in prison, even in the eyes of the Iranian authorities, he was not posing any threat whatsoever to the population, makes Iranian authorities responsible. The exact circumstances of of the care he was deprived of, unfortunately, is also not a new issue. For years, Iranian authorities, Iranian prison authorities, in close collaboration with intelligence and judicial authorities, have tampered with prisoners' access to healthcare and basically used it as a pressure tactic and a control mechanism against dissidents and and political prisoners. We have numerous cases of people suffering irreversible harm to their health as a result of the delay in receiving healthcare when they were detained. And also, for instance, they might authorize a visit to a prison clinic, but then transferring from an inside prison clinic to a healthcare facility outside prison still would require green lighting from intelligence and judicial authorities, which then can be withheld at any point, unfortunately, as a pressure tactic. So in that sense, I think it also signifies the the lack of care and regard for human lives and the lives of these people whose liberties are taken from them and they're at the mercy of prison authorities for access to their basic human rights, including right to health and life in this case. A group of Iranian political prisoners issued a statement a couple of days ago, and they said that the horrible conditions in Iran's prisons basically condemns prisoners to a uh, gradual death. But Corona has condemned them to a definite death. And they say this is something, as you said, this is something systemic has been happening in Iran for quite a long time. And with COVID, it has been exacerbated. In reaction to Bakhtash's death, uh, someone said this also has been a systemic soft war against Iran's Writers Association and also intellectuals in Iran. Two years, more than two years into the pandemic, we can't claim that we know everything about how the policy should be shaped around the response to this pandemic should be shaped. But there are things we very clearly know about the risks and and the need to mitigate those risks. Depopulating prisons and and not imposing individuals, particularly those with immunocompromised systems, um, to to additional risk, those are no-brainers. You ask anyone who has ever read any article about this issue, it's very, very clear. Iranian authorities 
also recognized these inherent risks within prison facilities. During the first year of the pandemic, immediately after the first wave that hit Iran, they reportedly released or temporarily released up to 85,000 prisoners. So I think the question here that they need to answer, and I think I suspect we have an answer for that here, is that why majority of peaceful dissidents and political prisoners who are not facing any violent charges whatsoever, but yet are spending prison sentences that are longer than five years, which was the cutoff limit that was proposed by the judiciary for using clemency and temporary release effort, were excluded from those measures. And I think the answer, unfortunately, the answer to that is that Despite everything that is happening in the country, the, the deterioration of the economic condition, environmental crisis, the pandemic and the health crisis, all of that combined, somehow the security establishment, the core security establishment of the system still considers peaceful dissident as a higher threat than many of those real world crises that they're dealing with. Otherwise, I don't think there's any justification. I mean, even now it's not justified. I'm just saying from their perspective, there's no reason whatsoever for them to summon Bakhtash Optin and his co-defenders to serve a sentence at the time that the pandemic is going on in the country. And I think um, activists are right to feel that this is part of a larger policy on, on repressing dissent um, in using and deploying various tactics, which has been going on for years. It, one side of it is imprisonment. At times, as I mentioned earlier, it took the most violent form of literally physically eliminating those peaceful dissidents they considered a threat. But then it also happens at various levels, um, depriving them of employment opportunities and ensuring that they cannot form any kind of independent associations, trying to harass them by summoning them for informal questions, if not formal summoning to serve a sentence. So the system has over time gotten more sophisticated, yet more bureaucratic with the aim of controlling peaceful dissent. Uh, one of the members of Iran's Writers Association recently said in an interview that once they target you, meaning the regime and the security forces, they will never leave you alone. And in the case of Bakhtash, we see that he was recycled in and out of prison, as have been so many other political prisoners in Iran. As you um recorded in the press release by the Human Rights Watch, you said Iran's justice officials bear responsibility for the death of Bakhtash Optin, who should have never been imprisoned for his work. So what were the charges against him? Bakhtash Optin and his co-defendant were facing two of the most common charges that these days dissidents face, um, assembly and collusion to act against national security security and propaganda against the state. And according to reports, including by the writers themselves, and the evidence used to justify those charges were there 
work in connection with the Iranian Writers Associations and, and attending, for instance, anniversary of the death of a prominent po- Iranian poet or the authors who were killed during the um, assassination of dissidents. Um, so it is very, very clear for us that this was an arbitrary case of prosecution that happened against, against him and there was no justification whatsoever for, for his imprisonment. Um, and I just want to complement what you mentioned about um, the quote of once you're targeted, you're not left alone. I think, I think you would be left alone only when you agree to seize your activities. So the demand is very, very clear. Like we want you to stop what you're doing. And as long as you're not backing down, we have all these tools at our disposal to coerce you to do so. During the interviews I do with victims of human rights violations and years of experiencing activism in Iran, um, the message is very clear. It's not about reasoning with them. It's not about entering a dialogue and explaining your rationale or, for instance, trying to explain that your, your aim is or is not overthrowing the system. It's that your activities need to be stopped and you need to be silent because sometimes you just have the potential to mobilize mobilize certain people for very legitimate demands, nothing that would even be considered a legitimate security threat. Uh, So far this year, Bakhtosh is the second political prisoner who has died in Iran's prisons. The other one, unfortunately, is the case of Kiana Adelpour, who died after going on hunger strike to protest being imprisoned without a fair trial. What can you tell us about this young man? Unfortunately, we actually don't know much about the the situation of the other case. And I think that's more of a common issue that many times we learn about these cases that are also usually outside the capital. It was in Khuzestan. Exactly. It was, yeah, Khuzestan province. Our information about prison system outside Tehran and major cities is pretty limited. And I think we need to be humble about the fact that we have not done it great job of documenting the the severity of violations that happen in prisons outside the capital. But horrendous condition, Evin is probably the best prison in terms of having access to many of the basic necessities, and it only gets worse when you leave the capital. And again, as I was saying, there are usually in these cases, we either find out very late or after the tragic incident happened, uh, which makes the case of Bakhtash Optin even more shocking case of a prominent writer that was being followed by various people inside the country and and activists inside the country, as well as different international organizations. And he was detained in Ebin prison in one of the wards that keeps many high-profile activists. Despite all these opportunities for access and intervention and attempt by human rights group, we still are faced with this very tragic outcome, which I think should raise alarm about the condition in prison and also should be a wake-up call for us to know that even in the case of most high-profile prisoners, prison authorities do act with very little or other lack of care for their well-being. So I think it should make all of us a lot more vigilant about the situation and, and sensitive. And we should redouble our effort to, to work on these issues because it's literally a matter of life and death.
تارا سپهریفر is a senior Iran researcher at Human Rights Watch. To hear the full interview, please visit statushour.com. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. سر میدوم رو به خانه تو که شاید بیابم نشانه تو فتاد ز پا خست آمدم که سر بگذارم به شانه تو که سر بگذارم به شانه تو سر میدوم رو به خانه تو که شاید بیابم نشانه تو فتاد ز پا خست آمدم که سر بگذارم به شانه تو که سر بگذارم به شانه تو And that's it for us this week Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening. برون برون وگر نز چشم نخافی من تا سپید دمان جوی خون برود ز جور فلک مانده در قفسم تا به سنگ ستم پشت کست مرا وگر این قفس را برب شکنم تا کجا ببرد بال خسته مرا